This is the Aloha Friday Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Talks. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Now this piece of music is the Aloha Friday Conversation theme. It's Pandanus by the Peter Moon Band on their Cane Fire album, 1982. You can't shazam this song, or at least I couldn't when I was looking for this theme. It's a local instrumental that could have just gotten lost in the sofa. I had to ask Derek Malama in his host of Kanikapila Sunday hat, and he recalled the name one day while he was folding laundry. I mean, there's no algorithm for this. It's been 30 years since the masterful original. And last year, drummer, ukulele virtuoso, Abe Lagrimas took it on. Abe Lagrimas, ukulele, and Lance Takamiya, slack key. They alternate on their second album, Elua, a 2020 Nahoku Hanohano Award nominee. welcomed a new executive director, Halona Norton Westbrook, came to Honolulu from the Toledo Museum of Art, but she is familiar with the islands. She spent vacations here growing up. After two fitful years under the previous director, Homa was looking forward to pulling the community together. Then coronavirus hit. Quite the challenge for a first-time museum director. You know, I think like all institutions and organizations right now, we are dealing with the new reality that COVID-19 has brought to our doorstep. You know, it means a change and adjustments both in the immediate um, and in the long term, because we're going to be dealing with this for a long time to come, um, or at least its aftermath, right? Social distancing is likely to, to be in place and limitations on group gatherings of 10 or more. So that's really going to change the way that we approach what we do um, once we reopen, which we hope is as soon as possible. But you know, the core things that we stand for in terms of promotion of art, of education, commitment to the community and, and access, all those things will remain. They're just going to look a little bit different as we um, kind of work towards what this new, new normal looks like for everybody. Right. What kind of models are there for how museums might be coming out of this? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, museums and all cultural organizations are asking themselves this question, right? Like, who are we most fundamentally and who will we be, um, you know, in this COVID-19 pandemic and, and afterwards? On one sense, it's it's scary because the things that are familiar to you and the ways of doing business that you're used to are not going to apply necessarily as you move forward. But on the other hand, it's a chance to really relook at what you stand for and think about the essence of that and really to feel rallied and uplifted about that and to think about new ways that that can be expressed. Um, I think by definition, you know, we're looking at a, a time ahead where we focus much more on the individual experience than on the group experience. Um, and that's not something that we normally have license to do as cultural organizations because we're really built around this model at this point of, of large group gatherings and all of a sudden um, the rules are different right so it's an opportunity as well to think about how we serve individuals and and also how we serve our community right as we look to what it's going to be like here um, in the time to come where we'll have a return of tourism we hope you know but it's going to be gradual and that also gives us an invitation to really give extra special focus to our local community. And, and I think that's something that we're really excited about. Mm. Well, the change in operations, the COVID-19 closures, how did that affect the museum? Yeah, so the museum is in really good shape financially and actually has been extremely well stewarded um, in that way in recent years. So we're fortunate. We have a combination of different sources that fund us, you know, both from um, private contributions from individuals and also from revenue that we get, you know, from our cafe and from our shop and from ticket sales. And part of what we're doing right now is planning out that financial modeling for what that looks like. Um, 
understanding that the most important thing that we need to do is is be here for our community, really having that be our focus carrying us forward. Well, so far, all seasonal and part-time staff have been laid off, as well as a third of the full-time staff. You have about 80 employees left now. For us, really, the question is about thinking ahead to that year, 18 months, or two years that we have in front of us, and what is going to be sustainable for the organization. So we've gone through a period of having some layoffs, but we hope to build up the staff as we get ready to reopen in uh, hopefully the coming weeks. So it's really about long-term sustainability and um, looking outward to the long-term forecast of the museum. You said you'd like to restore both staff and positions, some of which are pretty art-specific. We'll also probably have some re-maneuvering of roles, right, as we think about what the museum needs to do in the coming year to two years, because as I said, you know, we're going to have a big adjustment in terms of our audience. We're not going to have large-scale audiences. We're going to have smaller, more intimate audiences, and how do we best serve those individuals, you know, that's the plan going forward. We're talking with Halona Norton Westbrook, Executive Director of the Honolulu Museum of Art. Halona, what will the museum experience be like the next time we pass through your doors? We are working towards physically welcoming people back into the museum. And, you know, it's going to look like a more intimate, individualized visitor experience just by the nature of what we're facing with the COVID-19 pandemic. There would probably be time ticket entry. And I think also, you know, art education is a core part of of who we are and what we stand for. And so um, our absolute aim and goal is to bring the art school back um, completely in the future, but incorporating that art education experience into the general visitor experience, right? So that you get your time in the galleries, you have your time creating art, you know, and so to really think Um, think anew about the entire visitor experience and the entire array of things that HOMA offers and what that might look like in a new format and specifically geared towards individuals and, and smaller groups. And then, of course, we've also really ramped up our digital engagement efforts, and we don't see that going away um, at any point in the future, but really to have that complemented by the physical in-person visits to the museum as soon as possible is what we're working towards. Do you have a target date for that? Yeah, so like a lot of museums, you know, um, we are targeting an open date of July 1st, 2020. And I think that that's a really moving target at this point, but that's what um, most museums on the mainland are kind of doing generally, and we're following that same guidance. Um, if we can open sooner, we certainly will. If it's a little bit later, then we'll just have to adjust, as everybody else will, to the state and federal guidelines. But that would be our aim, to be open by July 1st and to have it be a more intimate visitor experience. Well, more intimate experience does not sound bad. Gee. <laughs> Welcome to town, Halona. You've been here four months now? It's a really unusual situation that we're in, and, and one of the things I've been saying to the staff is that part of what makes it unusual is that usually when something goes wrong in our life, um, it's kind of isolated to one area, right? You're having a problem with your relationship or something at your job. What's really unique about this moment in time is that the pandemic has really touched every aspect of all of our lives. So everyone is kind of doing a recalibration and a rethinking and a readjustment of every aspect of everything that they know all at once. So it's a very overwhelming time, um, I think, for everybody. And I think that's never been more important to kind of really focus on oneself and one's family and provide empathy and support to those that you're in immediate contact with um, and just understand that this is happening to all of us and to be patient with ourselves. This is an incredibly strong community and we're going to find a way forward. It's just uncharted territory. And I think that keeping that perspective in mind um, is very, very important as we, as we find the path forward. Hmm. Halona Norton Westbrook, Executive Director of Honolulu Museum of Art, looking forward to reopening July 1st. And I heard the 30 American show will be extended. If so, don't miss. In fact, look up Nick Cave today, not the singer, and know that he's waiting for you at the Honolulu Museum.
Bishop Museum, founded in 1889, is the Hawaii State Museum of Natural and Cultural History. Melanie Ide, president and CEO, has led the museum since January 2018. She says the Bishop Museum has trimmed expenses and is managing to avoid layoffs thus far. We were very successful in uh, securing the Paycheck Protection Program funding from the CARES Act. So yes, we were able to get that funding, which was critical for us in order to keep our staff. How much did you get and what will it do for you? We got close to $1.5 million, and what it will do is um, pay for our staff and certain expenses for about eight weeks. And again, that's going to, uh, you know, the objective is to be able to support staff and uh, keep our organization functioning and moving so that as we come back into recovery, we can go as smoothly as possible. So between that and a lot of other actions that we took with our staff, our board, our community, we were able to organize ourselves to carry ourselves through April and um, see our way into the the next period, which is, uh, I think, going to be challenging for our whole community. In times of fiscal uncertainty like that, you know, museums have really got to look at the priorities, and sometimes those priorities change. Uh, how are mm-hmm. you looking at that? For us, it's actually very simple. Um, we have our primary responsibilities to care for our irreplaceable collections because Bishop Museum stewards more than half of the world's primary source materials um, from Hawaii and across the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And these materials are essential. They're not a luxury. Um, They are really like the library of life and the library of our cultural heritage. And and, um, so many people, agencies um, and organizations um, and cultures depend on this material to be preserved. So it's a very rare and unique resource. It's not something that exists anywhere else on the planet, really. We have to do everything to protect it and preserve it for the future. I remember seeing some extinct Hawaiian birds in an exhibit not too long ago, and you have to wonder how they're doing right now, you know, in the midst of all this. Yeah, I mean, we have staff who go in regularly to, you know, empty the dehumidifiers out, make sure that the environmental conditions are stable and secure. We have holotype specimens of all, you name it, every plant and animal. I mean, we, a lot of people don't know it, but we're the repository of the Hawaii Biological Survey. So it's our, it's our mm-hmm. responsibility to keep track of and monitor every plant and animal in Hawaii. And we also have the Pacific Science Information Center for life across the Pacific. (laughs) So we have an incredible cultural collection, um, but our natural history collection, our scientific collection, including our DNA specimens, are essential. They're essential. They can't be put at risk, actually. Mm. About how much does it cost to keep the museum going then? Um, well, depending on how you count it, um, you know, we, we actually had to go through the exercise of what would it mean if all we did was care for our collections only, nothing else, and just, you know, keep the air conditioning going 24-7 and keep like the, the bare minimum skeletal staff protect mm-hmm. the materials and keep the security staff on and the buildings um, from, well, actually they do leak, so we can't, we can't actually, we haven't been able to figure that part out, but it's, yeah, it's about, you know, it's probably a good couple hundred thousand dollars a month just to do that, which isn't that much when you think about what we're caring for, what we, we have this global resource. We're actually one of the very few museums that has managed during this time not to have layoffs. You know, we're, we're holding on as tightly as we can, doing everything we can to um, keep it that way. But we've been at it for 130 years, and we, we need to be at it for another 130 years. You know, I have people who come through the museum my my parents' generation in their 80s and 90s, and they everybody still remembers the fourth grade <laughs> and seeing the whale. Of course. <laughs> you have to laugh. <laughs> it's an incredible thing if you think about what we've managed to do. And we were reminded by one of our staff and one of our registrars from 
a while ago. They said, you know, museums been there since, uh, you know, from the overthrow through World War One, through World War Two. The Navy used, you know, the place was shut down and it was used for housing. You, know, you think about what institutions really are. You know, the the word institution maybe doesn't sound so good, and the word museum makes you think certain things about like cases from the past, but it really isn't. I mean, our our museum is here for the future. Its purpose is about perpetuating the natural and cultural heritage of Hawaii and the Pacific. And it's, it's really forward thinking. It's really about how do we make those connections to the past and learn and understand so that we know how to move forward. It's a very Hawaiian concept or even a, a oceanic concept. You know what, Melody? Like, help paint the picture. What do you think the museum experience might be like when we finally do get to go back in? Oh, I'm so glad you asked because we've been really busy thinking about that. Because we have the great lawn, we have this great outdoor space. I think we have a rare opportunity to activate um, really an outdoor museum with outdoor exhibits, outdoor programs and Hmm. activities. We want to make sure that people know that you don't have to come to the museum just to go into the halls. We have incredible artifacts out in the um, rear atrium courtyard. Right. A lot of people don't it's look nice under back the. There. <laughs> it is very nice, and we're going to put up some shade so people can come just picnic on the lawn and and relax and bring their kids and be spaced apart, not feel the pressure and just mm. have have a different place to go. We're you know we also want to partner with the community and think about doing some of the things that we've always wanted to do. You know get an emu in place, you know, start baking some bread. I mean, (laughs) those are the things that we're, we're actually anxious to get moving on. Mm -hmm. Bishop Museum President and CEO, Melanie Ide. Now, I know a good number of you listening were there at the Maiki no Himai World of Surfing exhibition that opened on the Great Lawn at Bishop Museum just before this COVID shutdown. (laughs) We were there, sunset over West Oahu, party tents with great food, people sipping drinks, laughing, that wild outdoor sculpture with a huge wave, and inside, classic wooden surfboards. An amazing kind of fun full-room media environment. I mean... I'll see you there again one day. Now, Natalie A.I. Kamau, 1990 Miss Aloha Hula, already a Hoku Award winner, she's nominated again this year for her latest album. Here's an original, Ku'ulei Makamai. She explains it's a song for her husband about his lay for her. developments around the globe with the BBC Coronavirus Update. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Friday the 8th of May. I'm Andrew Peach. The World Health Organization says it could take at least a year to determine the exact origins of the coronavirus. Celebrations are held under lockdown to commemorate 75 years since victory in Europe and the end of the Second World War. And people in Fiji turn to bartering as money becomes tight during the pandemic. The World Health Organization says it could take at least a year to determine the exact origins of the coronavirus. Last week, the WHO rejected claims by President Trump that the virus came from a Chinese laboratory. Imogen Folks reports from Geneva. COVID-19 belongs to a virus that has its natural home in bats. 
But four months into a pandemic that has claimed more than a quarter of a million lives, that is where the certainty ends. Scientists aren't sure where exactly the outbreak began. Evidence points to a market in Wuhan, but of 41 early cases of the virus, only 27 had a direct connection to the market. The virus will have jumped from bats to another animal before infecting humans, but which animal remains unclear. The United States has suffered more bad news on the economy because of the pandemic, with unemployment soaring to its highest rate since the eve of the Second World War. The jobless rate in April hit 14.7%, more than three times the figure the previous month. A third of 20 million jobs that were lost in the hospitality and leisure sectors. Donald Trump, who's keen to reopen the US economy, predicted they'd soon return. At least 16 migrant workers in western India have been killed after a train ran over them while they were heading back home during the coronavirus lockdown. Officials said they'd fallen asleep on the track. Tens of thousands of people have been walking home from India's big cities after being laid off. From Delhi, here's Yogatil Imai. There has been a lot of criticism about the plight of migrant workers in India. Millions of these people stuck in cities like Mumbai as well, you know, we've been seeing them. Six weeks ago when the nationwide lockdown was announced, these people were left without jobs. I've personally met people who've told me that they're now sleeping on the streets because they were uh, thrown out of the small rooms that they rented. They had no money. So there's been a lot of criticism about this. The government has announced an aid package, but the fact of the ground is it's not getting to everyone and they're desperate to go back home. Shanghai Disneyland is preparing to reopen on Monday after a three-month lockdown. Tickets have already sold out for several days next week. Disney said the Chinese government had asked the park to limit attendance to 30% of its normal capacity. The Secretary-General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, says an all-out effort is needed to counter what he called a tsunami of hate unleashed by the pandemic. Mr Guterres said anti-foreigner sentiment had surged both online and in real life. He said anti-Semitic conspiracy theories had gained traction while there had also been attacks against Muslims. Mr Guterres appealed in particular to educational institutions to teach children how to be digitally literate and not succumb to hate speech. People across Europe are marking the 75th anniversary of the defeat of Nazi Germany in the Second World War. Public events are being kept to a minimum because of the coronavirus lockdowns. In many towns and cities across Britain, lone bagpipers have played when the battles are in honour of the heroes of World War II. Here's the sound of a piper from Inverness in Scotland. In Berlin, the German president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, warned against divisions which are being laid bare by the coronavirus pandemic. He also warned that Germans who didn't accept responsibility for the country's past didn't belong in modern-day Germany. Germany's history is a broken history, with a responsibility for the murder and suffering of millions. It breaks our heart to this day. That's why you can only love this country with a broken heart. Those who can't bear this, those who want to draw a line, not only dismiss the catastrophe of war and Nazi dictatorship, they debase all the good we have achieved since then. And people on the Pacific island of Fiji are returning to bartering for goods as money becomes tight during the pandemic. A Facebook group called Barter for a Better Fiji has more than 120,000 members in a country of fewer than a million people. One deal saw two piglets traded in return for a kayak, another hair braiding in exchange for toys. While Fiji has been spared the worst of coronavirus, its vital tourism sector has been hit hard with 5% of people losing their jobs. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programs. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and Impact Hub Honolulu Co-Working. 
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Porter Story. And I'm Gail Story, author of I Promise Not to Suffer. Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about our hike of the Pacific Crest Trail. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. Hawaii people love seafood, but it might be easy to forget the value of fishing in Hawaii's whole food system. The Longline Fishing Association says it's the largest protein-producing food industry in Hawaii, with an extensive network of producers, suppliers, and distributors all across the island chain. We usually don't think too much about how exactly that poke gets to our plate, but Eric Kingma, executive director of the Hawaii Longline Association, says it's important to remember fishermen actually travel hundreds of miles to pull those ahi out of the open ocean. Fishing is inherently a, a risky business, so every time a, a vessel, whether it's a small-scale trolling vessel, weekend warrior, or even a, a larger-scale commercial vessel, every time that trip is put together and leaves, leaves the dock or the boat ramp, it's expensive, so it involves planning. So for our vessels, they're, they're fairly large, about 75 feet to almost 100 feet. You know, before they leave the dock, they have to purchase bait, fuel, they have to purchase um, supplies and groceries. Their trip lengths are about, you know, two weeks to three weeks. Five to six crewmen on the boat. You know, it's, it's serious work. They work long hours and, and they're very good at what they do. These vessels are, are fairly large, so they can go large distances away from Honolulu. So How far? a fishing vessel will fish between, you know, 150 to 500 miles or even greater from Honolulu. And before they leave the dock, it's about a $35,000 expense just to, just to go fishing for these large vessels. So they do have to uh, catch the fish and return with as high as quality fish as they can to get that return on that fishing trip investment. How many people would you say are involved in the industry? Thousands. So uh, just on the fishing side alone, you know, there's around a thousand. Um, and then you factor in the Honolulu auction, the seafood distribution companies. There's about, you know, eight to ten large locally owned wholesale seafood distribution companies that have dozens of employees. Um, they have facilities on each of the islands. And then when you get into the supply chain, you know, the truck drivers, the getting it into restaurants. It's thousands of people that are directly and indirectly involved in this industry. And how have the COVID-19, you know, changes affected this business? Well, it's been major, Noe. Um, since March 14th, uh, we saw a major sort of decline crash in the seafood auction price. So, um that day we saw, I remember it well, it was a Saturday, March 14th, we saw a reduction of 80% in the landed value overnight. And really that's because of the loss of the restaurants and uh, sort of tourism associated sector. Oh, demand so, just dropped. Just dropped. And what we've been finding out across the nation is not just here locally with our seafood, is that most of the United States seafood production uh, goes into the what we call food service or restaurant sector. Most people, um, you know, don't really necessarily buy seafood and take it home and cook it. They rather do it at a restaurant, train chefs. They know how to do it. It's, I mean, so seafood is delicate, right? It's you kind of kind of got to know how to cook it in order for it to get its most the best taste out of it. So nationally, this is being observed as well as locally. The food service sector of the supply chain is critical to uh, fishing industries. When that was eliminated, the market really dropped. And since then, so for the past eight weeks or so, we had about a 60% loss in value. Our fishery is the number one food producing industry in Hawaii in terms of value. It's about $100 million at the dockside value. Most is staying in Hawaii and then... Um, the next point is, is the U.S. mainland. And this is high quality, you know, number one grade sashimi products. 
for the tunas. And then also, you know, we land several other species like opa, manchong, mai mai. All of these have high value and they're very tasty and they're also able to be marketed across the country. Uh, what's happening? Are boats just not going out at all? You know, I was very concerned that most of our fleet would tie up and, and they did. So we had you know, about 100 vessels tie up in Honolulu Harbor for two weeks. And then the market came up a little bit and vessels, you know, they wanted to go fishing. It's, it's making your choice. You either lose money at the dock, because even if you tie up, you're still paying crew. You got to pay to run the boat. I mean, it's not, it's not uh, no cost, even when you tie up. And, and vessels uh, began to fish again. But some of the larger vessels have continued to tie up because the price at auction it's just too low. They're not going to make any profit. So smaller vessels have lower operating costs and, and can maybe make it at a more depressed market versus a larger vessel. So we are also, we tried to reduce the supply to meet the very weak market. So we're at about 70% of supply and we're asking vessels to take shorter trips, have lower volumes on landing. And then also the auction is holding the daily volume at around 70% of historical levels. So we've voluntarily reduced to meet that very sort of weak market demand. And I've been hearing about people just, you know, your regular average everyday retail person heading down to the docks in the morning. Well, yeah, there's a couple of um, opportunities now that, you know, Fresh Island Fish um, is a vertically integrated company here locally. They have their vessels and they also supply various outlets with fish. And they've been doing their own sort of direct to consumer sales program. Um, It's been working pretty good. Um, I think that is something they're going to continue. And it's a new opportunity to provide seafood to consumers directly. This model is being tested not only here locally, but other places in the United States about how do consumers access their food. So we're kind of getting into new models. No restaurant is going to be able, at least my understanding, to to operate at 100% capacity. So those volumes are going to be reduced. And, you know, that still is going to have a a major impact on our market. Um, Mm -hmm. the, The outlook for our industry is not a good one. And so we are definitely interested in campaigns to promote you know more accessibility to of our fish to local consumers whether it's buy local campaigns or new methods to get uh, fish products out to to local residents so just buying it in the stores already is is helping out uh yeah a little bit but you know our like any uh, food product sold in retail stores across the state, our products compete with foreign sourced uh, seafood products, foreign imported tuna, for example, which is caught at much, at much cheaper operating costs. How can um, we tell if it's locally caught? Well, there's a couple ways. One way is if the product, say the, the poke product that you're buying at the local supermarket says previously frozen gas treated, that's all foreign import. There's no uh, fishing enterprise here that is freezing their fish and, and gas treating it. So that's one way. You can tell them by the color as well. Um, that sort of gassed product, it's much lighter pink as compared to sort of that deep crimson red um, when it's not frozen or gas treated. If you're buying, say, filet in a package, look at the label, and that label should also have the country of origin. You know, we've got a stake in this. What is the most consumers could do? What I'd like to see is more ability for Hawaii um, residents to access our fish at lower prices. You know, you can get our fish at the supermarkets at, at $25 a pound, but that's because that fish is competing against, at the auction level, about a fish going to the mainland and, and different restaurants. Well, if that, if that is restricted, you know, maybe we can get more Hawaii fish to local consumers at a cheaper price, but also have the return onto the vessel side so we don't have to continue to tie up. Everyone in the supply chain has to make their margin, including the retailer. But I do think there is an opportunity here to provide more Hawaii fish to Hawaii consumers at cheaper prices. Hmm. We've been talking with Eric Kingma, executive director of the Hawaii Longline Association. He says federal aid has been promised but not allocated, and assistance from the state has not yet materialized for this crucial link in our food system. But, Kingma says, Akule season's starting. Akule's starting to run. Oh, we go. Oh, my God.
Aloha Friday is all about art, culture, and ideas with special aloha for the neighbor islands. Today, we're finding out about hunger in Maui County with Maui Food Bank Executive Director Richard Eust. We've seen demand for food at unprecedented levels here on Oahu. And I heard that demand for food on Maui has doubled? Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Well, well more than doubled. And the Maui Food Bank, just to kind of give you an idea, typically we distribute roughly 220,000 pounds a month. In the month of April, we distributed 535,000 pounds for the month of April, over double. And was there need for more? Oh yeah, absolutely. We're seeing the numbers consistently increase. We partner with roughly 150 partner agencies. Many of them would do once a week distribution. Some would do twice a month distributions. All of them are at least doing a once a week. Some of them have even gone to a seven day a week distribution. Where are supplies uh, coming from? Well, that's that's the big crux in the whole scenario of food banking right now. Well, we've seen a complete fall off of product coming in from USDA. So that's one hit. The other big hit is that donation coming in from the wholesalers and the retail sector is typically, you know, roughly 65% of our donations typically come in through store donations and from the wholesalers. And that's now less than 10% of our total product that's coming in. So where do you make up for that? Well, guess what? We're purchasing food. We spent more in the month of April on food than we typically do in a whole year. We spent over, what, $350,000 just in the month of April for food. And you're saying the need was greater. What's happening on Lanai? Lanai, you know, they're in a little bit different situation. Yeah, there is an increase in demand on Lanai, but there's obviously not that many folks there. And Lanai is pretty resilient at taking care of each other. I mean, actually, Molokai is the same way. Uh, Molokai, you know, we know that main grocery store had closed down. And while the need on Molokai is generally high, we've doubled the amount of shipments uh, just to help handle that. You know, they have a lot of uh, folks who have time right now because they're not working. So they've been out fishing for the community and they've been out hunting for the community. The problem that Molokai has, they had no place to store it and distribute it. So we sent over four pallets of, of brand new giant coolers flown over there by the Coast Guard so that they had a place to store all this meat and fish that the, that people had been hunting. So you see some resiliency, which is really awesome, to the uh, community stepping up and wanting to help each other. And we see that here on Maui, too, with folks wanting to donate. And the thing is, is we're constantly getting new agencies wanting to come on board because, say, it's uh, you know, a local church or something. They're getting their constituents saying, hey, I need food. Well, guess what? We need additional food to help supply those agencies. So uh, Where's that going to come from? We are reaching out to every nook and cranny we can. But Rich, you've got back orders to March. You have orders simply not being filled. Uh, You're saying even if you had the money, that wouldn't solve the problem here. That's one of the issues we're running into. Even you know, even if we had a uh, limitless checkbook, finding the supply of food, it's becoming more and more difficult. And it's becoming more and more costly, the food that you can fund. You know, rents are due, even though people have been able to defer rent for maybe a month or two. Well, guess what? Rents are going to start coming due again. People still are going to be without jobs and their savings are gone and their credit cards are maxed out. Unfortunately, I see that the demand's going to actually get dramatically higher. And, and we'll, you know, we will get through this. It's, it's going to be tough. I think, and it's going to get tougher. And as more and more of these folks realize they're not doing kayak tours anymore, you don't have the trips up to Haleakala, the van loads of tourists going out to Hana. That's not coming back for a while. And I think we're going to unfortunately be in this for uh, a lot longer than we want to. Richard Eust is executive director of Maui Food Bank. Maui, majestic Maui. Here's Akoni extolling your particular charms.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors The Rice Partnership and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. When you tune in to HPR, you often hear voices from right here in the islands. I'm Gene Schiller, and on today's Morning Cafe... Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's All Things Considered, and I'm Dave Lawrence. I'm Derek Malama, and welcome to Kanikapila Sunday. In fact, one-third of our shows are hosted right here by the HPR team. They bring you news and music from here and around the world and put it in context for local listeners like you. To learn more, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Air Cargo, committed to connecting the Hawaiian Islands, continuing to provide inter-island shipping and cargo services during these unsettled times. Learn more at alohaaircargo.com. Hey, what's for lunch? What's for dinner? <laughs> and what's it like when it's all up to you? <laughs> How about some ideas now from Grant Sato, an extremely exacting Kapi'olani Community College chef instructor. You'll see what I mean. He's been posting a steady stream of luscious pictures of supposedly his meals. I had to call him and ask, are these dishes you've made at various times in your career that you're just now showing off? No, those are the items I'm actually cooking every day. You know what, Grant? Where do you uh, get your food? Pre-pandemic, I usually shop at, uh, I, I don't want to promote anyone's supermarket, but I usually uh, shop at supermarkets that are open 24 hours. And I usually like to go at 4 a.m. in the morning, usually because there's not a, lot of, not a lot of customers there. The stores are being restocked at that time, so the newest product comes out around that time. Now, because of the pandemic, I've been going later. I'm going after uh, kupuna hours. So I'm, I'll usually go, you know, around right at 7.05 or 7.15 a.m., right around there. Mm -hmm. What are you buying? I'm usually um, planning my menu at least a week in advance. So I'm buying things that I want to create. I'm buying things, again, that I can multipurpose. So, for example, if I'm going to buy ground beef, or ground pork, I'll usually utilize that to create a dish that needs to come from a raw state. For example, like meatballs or a dumpling filling or um, things of that nature. And then I'm just going to cook the rest of it off and then freeze it in smaller batches. So for example, after I cook it off and put in small little Ziploc bags and freeze it, maybe I'll pull some out and have like uh, add that cooked hamburger to a marinara sauce to make a bolognese or I'll add it to a curry sauce to have like a hamburger curry or just things like that so I can just repurpose it and have a longer shelf life to it so I don't have to worry about utilizing everything I buy in that first few days huh. so it doesn't spoil. How about produce? For produce I have found especially for leafy greens, lettuces, cabbages, things that tend to dehydrate very quickly, wash them and dry them, and then place them in a zip-top bag, and they last quite a long time. Hmm. I'm also a fan of these whole head lettuces that they have in the markets now. With the roots on? No, not with the roots on, but they're just packed as whole heads. Huh. Because what I like to do is I'll take them out of the container, I'll soak them in a bowl of water for about 30 minutes, then I'll dry them. Then I'll put them into that zip top bag. And when I need some, I'll just take a few of the outer leaves off to do my salad or for a burger or whatever I need them for. And then just keep putting the inner portions back into the refrigerator. Because they're attached to their central stem, they tend to stay fresh and crisp a lot longer. That's a super tip for lettuce, you know. Yeah, how about yeah so I've, 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 I've changed uh, the, the way that I you know, shop just to, just with the specific focus of longevity, just because, you know, we're not traveling out as often. I have to really plan what I'm shopping for and what I'm buying now. You get cucumbers, right? Cucumbers, tomatoes, yes. How do you choose your tomatoes? Say I buy three tomatoes. The first tomato is, is ripe and, you know, ready to go. So that goes into my refrigerator. The other two that are not quite there yet. I put them, I live in a condo and I have a, a South Shore view. So 
I get sunlight through there. So I have this little table right in front of the window that I'll place produce and I'll basically ripen them um, hmm. as I need to. And you know, it takes about a week for a tomato to fully ripen hmm. at room temperature with, you know, daytime sunlight. So three tomatoes can last me a week and a half to two weeks. Wow. I wish, you know, I, do you know how many people across this world probably just wish they could get the hang of you know, figuring out when an avocado is ripe and opening it at the right time? You know, um, avocados are one of those items that will tell you when they're ripe. Most of the times they're picked green and when they're picked green, the stem is still attached. So usually once the stem disconnects from the avocado, that means it's, it's getting to the point where it's starting to ripen. And what I've been doing lately myself is, you know, avocados, as you know, are heat or miss. You're either going to get some ripe or they're all going to be rock hard and green or whatever it is. I will usually buy them when they're on sale and I will self-ripen them just to the point where the stem, you know, will self-detach and they'll start to feel slightly soft. And then once that happens, the ones that I don't need immediately, I will freeze them whole as is. What? Yes, people don't know this. Avocados freeze wonderfully well. Now, when they defrost, they are not going to be that, you know, same texture where they're sliceable and they have all these beautiful slices, but they're going to be slightly softer, but they're going to be that same green and same delicious flavor. And if you're only going to slightly mash them or, you know, mash them for guacamole or you're going to make avocado toast with them, throw them in the freezer and then defrost it. And then when you need it, cut it open remove the seed and you're going to find that the inside is beautiful green and still gorgeous texture and they stay well they don't turn black they don't turn brown got that um those are just such terrific tips we can use right in the kitchens right now it's just so great but it seems so far away from some of the stuff you're making i gotta admit you know what you're really throwing me off with though is, is your stuffed omelets or whatever you call the bombs. Oh, okay. I mean, like, okay, okay. What is this? Is this a thing? It's okay, guys. It's like a, it looks like a chef's hat, you know, but it's egg, I imagine. I always am thinking and dreaming about new ways to present things. At school, we teach our students, you know, there's an American omelet. There's a French omelet where it's either single fold or double fold. But I thought, you know, is there a way where we can try to develop these new techniques that give you that wow factor? You know, eggs are such an inexpensive, well, they were an inexpensive ingredient before this pandemic, but there's something that has good shelf life. Everyone, you know, likes eggs or appreciates eggs. So I was just trying to take that omelet to the next level. And put tripe stew inside. Who's going to do well, that? You know, well, that's my, that's my comfort food, right? I love tripe stew. I love Zippy's chili. So I thought, how can I have a nice bed of rice and then put this, you know, unusual round dome of egg on top of it? And then when you cut into it, you know, all of this glorious stew and chili comes oozing out. I, I just thought it was a challenge as a chef to see how far we can take something very simple isn't that the true test of a chef is to take something ordinary and make it extraordinary? <laughs> Come on, you know, we're lay people. My next meal, what, what do you think I should make? Whatever your heart desires. You know, comfort food. The first thing is always your comfort food. You're always going to have your favorites and we all love our, our own favorites and we want it to be the same every time, but there's still something you could do in some part of your menu. Just one dish, one beverage, one something that, you know, gets people excited. Fun. Really great, Grant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Take it you. easy. Thank you. Yeah, and look forward to my post because one will be coming up in the next hour. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm going to start cooking now. What? It's only going to take an hour. Grant Zato, KCC Culinary Institute of the Pacific Chef Instructor. He's on Instagram. I mean, should we have him back for some knife skills, maybe? Our closer now, Josh Tatofi. His song about Mauna Kea, For the Lahui, is Anahoku nominee for Song of the Year. Mm-hmm. 
The Nahoku Hanohano Awards Ceremony has been postponed until September 10th. Online voting is happening right now, and there'll be a virtual celebration of Hawaiian music and musicians. That's set for May 23rd, and we'll be telling you more about that. Here's Josh Tatofi again, just to show you his range. Baldwin High grad got eight Nahoku nominations this year for this album. It's full of originals like Ta'u Ta'awai, Contemporary Tongan, Made in Hawaii. Here it is. That's it for this Aloha Friday conversation. Sure hope you enjoyed. Catherine Cruz returns Monday as we welcome back producer Lillian Song and bid thanks and adieu to Russell Subiono. And I assure you, Harrison Patino and Jason Ubai shall return. News Director Bill Dorman, ever the steady hand guiding the HPR news team. <laughs> Quite the dog sled operation here. <laughs> Call our talkback line. We would love to hear from you. 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post comments at all the usual locations and visit the conversation page on the HPR web website. Uh, there you can catch all of our back shows. 